Well, for some of us, those uh, words of terror. And now for our final hymn, as we're being called upon to speak. Well, fear is a good thing. Uh, it's kind of like uh, climbing to altitude, knowing that in a few minutes I'm going to be leaving the aircraft well above the, the earth. It's when that door opens, oh, this is a real thing. That's when it's great to have a friend in Jesus. I can take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, so much of my message was covered in the worship server this morning. I, you know, I could really just say, hallelujah, praise God, amen, and we could just go home. That might rob you of the opportunity a little later to have roast preacher on the way home, so I'll go ahead and give the message. Some of you have had the uh, consternation of trying to listen to me in open conversation. I'm so busy thinking about what I might say in the future that I truncate or cut off what it is I'm trying to relate. That's why I normally always come with notes to prevent that. Father, you know the speaker this morning, and you, you and I both know that if you don't show up and speak, uh, your word isn't going to be uh, put forth in the manner that you would have it. Father, I just pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, allow your word to go forth and accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it out, and that we might uh, bring your name glory and exaltation, and we might lift up your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we indeed might be prepared to leave here today better servants of the living God, the one of whom I can say, I am his and he is mine. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, I'm going to try to fulfill the, um, the work of an evangelist this morning. Um, we think about that in preaching the gospel, and of course I'm going to do that. But really the work of an evangelist, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip the saints, that they might uh, bear witness of the Savior. And maybe the title will give you a hint of where this is going. It came about through conversations with a number of people for reaching out to specific groups, including our brother Joshua. And as I got thinking about this, I realized, not having any Jewish blood in me that I know of, that I am the grafted in branch who's going to speak to the tree whereby I receive life. So we're going to look at the gospel this morning, but we're going to do it from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Bible, from our Old Testament. If we're going to speak about the gospel, some of you know that I really like short definitions. What's heaven? That's wherever God is. But what's the gospel? It is the opportunity for mankind to spend forever, all eternity, in the presence of the glory of God. Yet we know that there's a problem. There's something which stands between us and that reality. We look at this mythical existence around us and think it's reality. No, it's a shadow. It's a hint of real things to come. But no matter where you go in this globe, in every corner there's religion because mankind knows that we're separated from our creator. That's why there's all those man-made religions, to try to restore this lost fellowship. So we're going to talk about the gospel, and we define it by the New Testament. I'm going to talk about a few verses we use in the New Testament, but then we're going to look at what's the foundational truth for those from the Old Testament? Because trust me, they're all there. If John 14, 6, uh, we take as a proclamation that there's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus, there's a, an equal verse 
uh, in the Old Testament. You've heard me use it many times. It's a glorious verse. You can read through it at first blush and miss a lot, but it's Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved. So whoever he's speaking to can be saved. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Oh, that's fantastic news. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. There's one way to be saved, and that's to approach the Father. Now, we know that that can only be done through the work of Messiah, the one we worshiped this morning at the worship service. And we, as the Christian church, we define the gospel as, according to what Scripture tells us, that all man is sinful, uh, therefore they're separated. That's eternal death, separation from God. Uh, we need salvation through a Savior. So God, in his love for us, provides a substitute sacrifice, Therefore, he pays the price that is due, that must be paid. There's a shocking statement I often make is God never forgives sin. No sin is ever forgiven. Every single sin must be paid for. Question, who pays for it? Well, for me, it's either me, which I do forever in a place I don't want to be, or it's Jesus. And for you, the only two people in all eternity that can pay for your sin is you or Jesus. So how do we relate that in a manner to the descendants of Jacob that does not become offensive to them. And trust me, they have, there's some justification for them to be distrustful and dislike all that is um, wrapped up in what they perceive to be Christianity. Well, we do it again by using the scripture that they're going to accept, the Tanakh, the, the law, the prophets, the writings. It's the same book we have, a little different order. There's finishes with Chronicles, but we can point to the truths. And if we can do it and relate to it in their, in scripture that they receive, they'll read those scripture as we, by the power of the Spirit, plant thoughts in their heart and they'll become alarmed because they'll see how much continuity there is in the gospel of the New Testament, how it is so gloriously proclaimed in the Old Testament. And that's what we want. We want the Spirit to be able to begin to remove the partial blindness that's engulfed them. We talked about the universal uh, nature of, of sin. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20, our brother read this morning, I was going to talk a little bit about that. But we look at Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Where do we go in the Old Testament? We want to relay that uh, to the Jew. And there are some interesting issues about sin. I'll talk about that with regard to how the Jews look at it a little later. But they have verses that perhaps carry more of a greater amount of truth than Romans 3.23. I'm not downplaying Romans 3.23. But if we look at Isaiah 64.6, it has that plus so much more. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. Who, how many? All of us. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, or dare I say, leprous. That's what it's speaking here of uncleanness. Leprosy is such a, a, a great picture of sin. Leprosy is, is a disease which overcomes the central nervous system and it removes a body of the ability to feel pain. That'd be like living a life without any conscience. And somebody can slice themselves open and bleed to death or be pierced um, or be burned. And from the secondary causes, uh, they die because they're not aware that they've been injured. And if we play with sin, 
When we continue to play with sin, we become numb and we no longer feel its pain and we can get drawn in. Many of us have done that and suffered significant injury because of our foolishness. So Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. So not only do we have in this verse the message that all are sinners, but even our righteous deeds. Now, what does that word righteous mean? It means right before God. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Again, as we often say, God loves our good works, but he hates it when we put our faith in them. And all of us wither like a leaf. Are live leaves withered? No, it's a sign there's no life in them. Their, their dead leaves wither up. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. A, a, a dried up withered leaf has no substance and it's just blown away. And all iniquity will be swept out of the presence of God. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, again, just to establish this universal nature of sin in all people. Uh, our brother read Ezekiel, I mean, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Um, in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, finally, I'll, um, reading from Psalm 130, I, I like the verbiage here, the, the way the Young's Literal Translation puts it. If iniquities thou dost observe, O Lord, who doth stand? My NASB and the King James say, if you mark, in other words, if, O Lord, if you keep track of sin, who can stand? Well, latent, inherited in that message is that nobody. It gives us, again, two messages here. Not only the fact that all have sinned, but nobody can stand because of it. And that leads us into the consequences of sin. If we look at Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Well, we can find verses, multiple verses in the Old Testament that give us the same picture. Ezekiel 18 is a chapter full of, um, of wisdom and warning for us about sin. Ezekiel 18.4, God says, you know, all souls are mine. Hooray, we all belong to the Lord. Finish the verse, all souls are mine, and the soul that sins must die. If we belong to the Lord, we're his to do with whatever he will. And he says, all souls that sin must die. That answers one of the misconceptions that some followers of Judaism have about sin and the individual. Jumping down to verse 20 in that chapter, it repeats this. All souls that sin must die, but it also tells us that the son shall not die for the sins of the father, neither shall the father die for the sins of the son. So another important message here is that one sinner can't die and pay for the sins of another. It, it, it just can't happen, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. This next one, of, um, maybe it takes, uh, we have to use our brains, at least for me, I got to get real cerebral when I first looked at this and all of a sudden it jumped out at me, but... Genesis 2, um, verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. I'm going to ask a question. Is there anybody here who does not know the difference between good and evil? I don't see any hands going up. I mean, that's just a, a confession that we've all had a bite of that poison, that poison fruit. 
We all have that within us. Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. There's many others. In Habakkuk, chapter 1, the, the prophet who's actually challenging God. You know, he's talking about the Babylonians are going to come and destroy uh, Judah, Jerusalem. He's saying, they're worse than the Jews. Oh, why would you, you? You can't even stand to look at sin. And that's just an assertion. We know that God sees sin. He keeps track of it. He knows where all my sins are hidden. No, what it's saying is you, you cannot bear to look upon it. He's going to sweep it out of his presence. I, I oftentimes will, as a demonstration, say, here's the problem. My separation from God is if this is me and this represents all the things I've done wrong, there's God. He's got none whatsoever. When I die, my, my iniquity cannot go into his presence and remain. It will be judged and cast away forever. And that's the issue. You see, God doesn't grade on a curve. He judges us all against him. He's perfect. We're not. Somehow we have to come up with an answer for that. But we're not able. But praise God. With God, all things are possible. We understand that a substitutionary death uh, was required. And we see it in Messiah, in, in Jesus. Uh, numerous uh, scripture points to that. I was going to use um, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Think of what Peter said in 1 Peter 2. Uh, speaking of Christ, he says, Who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. <laughs> Peter's obviously referring and quoting from Isaiah 53, and we're going to spend a fair amount of time there later in the message. Here's somebody who's made a substitutionary sacrifice. That kind of flies in the face of what we read in Ezekiel 18.20. There must be something special going on. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, there's this unfair trade. Oh, it's unfair, but it works to our benefit. God says, I'll take your sin and give it to Jesus. I'll take his righteousness and give it to you. And there's the clue. We become his righteousness. That's how we have this access to God. Well, if we see in the New Testament those scripture which point out to us that a, a, an unfair trade was made to our benefit, uh, where do we find it in the Old Testament? And you might want to write down Leviticus 17.11. And many people say, oh yeah, that's where the life is in the blood. Let's read it. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So it's not the law. It's not the sacrifice. It's the blood. Psalm 49, uh, verses 7 and 8, and then we'll jump down to 15. It, again, it poses this, this question. It begs the question, how can this substitution happen? For one, one soul, because Psalm 49, verse 7 says, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. Again, it's just reiterating what we've heard from the prophet Ezekiel in 1820. The answer's in verse 15, Psalm 49, 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. 
Selah. Pause and consider, he tells us. Throughout the Old Testament, salvation is always a work of God. Not the work of the hands of mankind. So we have what appears perhaps here to be a, um, a contradiction. And we should rejoice when we find a contradiction because when we winnow out the answer, the truth for it, there's always a great blessing. And if we read in eight, Ezekiel 18.20 and uh, here in Psalm 49 that a man can't die for another, how do we reconcile that with a few phrases I'll just quote here uh, from Isaiah 53? He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. With his stripes we are healed. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How's that possible? The answer is in one of the phrases from verse 11. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. As we, as we saw in Ecclesiastes 7, in Psalm 14, Isaiah 64, there's none of us that are righteous. That's why a man cannot die for the sins of another because he's got his own sins to die for. You know, for the, for the Jew, they have the, the covenant that they're holding, but we know that that covenant's been replaced. There's a new covenant. Again, our, our brother read of it this morning, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. After the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Reminds us what God has told us in Leviticus 17.11. It is blood that makes atonement for the soul. Sin is only put away by the blood. We know we, we quote Paul, the writer to the Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. In Jeremiah 31, we have the old covenant uh, spoken of being replaced by the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the day come, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the Mosaic covenant, the one delivered by God through Moses to the people, is going to be put away. This new covenant is not going to be like that. And one of the benefits is something that is not inherent in the Old Testament sacrificial system, and that's this knowledge and eternal security. In verse 34, God says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's just not just a declarative statement, which it is. He is saying, I will remember their sin no more. He's not old and senile like me. You know, I, I can... I can forget what I've said. A week later, I keep, I, it's possible I could listen to one of my, own, my own messages and say, what's this guy on about? Or if I do recognize it's me, I might say, I wonder what I'm going to say next. God doesn't forget anything, but he chooses here to remember their sins no more. And that's the blessing we have with eternal security. And rather than accept this new covenant that's been instituted by the coming of Messiah almost 2,000 years ago, the Jews have continued to follow their legalistic and ritualistic system, a system that was shuttered by God when the temple was destroyed. You can't have temple sacrifice without a temple. 
So they found a way, they feel, to get around that. And this is important to understand. Um, if we're going to share God's word, God's gospel with them. And if anything I say comes across as me looking down or thinking poorly of the Jews, that, I'm not speaking clearly if that's coming across because I love the Jews. I don't approve of everything as, as a nation that they've done, but I love the Jews, and not just because my God has said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. But again, it is through their flock the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came and provided my salvation. I'm a dead branch that's been grafted onto a living tree. We ought to have the heart. We ought to love the ones that, now God loves all mankind, but the apple of his eye is Israel. So when I speak about this, again, this is in, in concert with the proclamation of God that for a time partial blindness is going to come upon them. Now what the rabbis have done um, with the loss of the temple is they've tried to figure out a way that they can have forgiveness for sin. And they go to a number of passages and say that, well, sacrifice isn't really required. They'll look at Psalm 50 or Proverbs 15, 8, and Proverbs 21, Isaiah chapter 1, um, and Jeremiah 7, Amos 5, and Hosea 6, Psalm 40. And in these, there's, there's this talking about a sacrifice, not God not desiring a sacrifice, desiring obedience or desiring mercy more than sacrifice. Um, for the rabbis, somehow, this leaves them under the law but frees them for the need of, of sacrifice. The problem is, Scripture nowhere supports that notion. In fact, most of those passages, not all, but most of those passages are a direct stinging rebuke of God toward them for their disobedience because the, the sacrifice is offered without a contrite heart. He rejects it because the, the, their sacrifices have become a mockery. They're hollow acts without repentance. So he counsels them to repent. The threat is always, I'm going to take the sacrifice away. Again, God doesn't desire the blood of bulls and goats to put away sin. That was a reminder to us as it was to Adam and Eve. Can you imagine how horrible that must have been having direct, wonderful communion with animals to watch God of creation slay animals and knowing that it was because of their sin that it happened. There's a consistency. The scarlet thread of redemption from Genesis to Revelation is the same. There is a cost of sin. That's what the sacrifice of animals is about. That heartfelt obedience must be coupled with sacrifice. We can see a picture of it um, in uh, when Samuel's rebuking uh, King Saul, who was ordered to go out and utterly destroy the Amalekites, yet he comes back with the king still alive and the, the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and all this. And Samuel goes out and says, he, he uses comparative language here. Listen to this. Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. See, that's one of the reasons the rabbis will say they can do this. And to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. That's like dabbling in the occult. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Wow. It's pretty serious. You know, that admonition, those warnings still go out to us as well. Paul talks about that again in that passage here in 1 Corinthians 11. 
we come and in, in partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, especially in a way in which causes others to blaspheme the name of God. Well, for that reason, some were, fell ill and some actually died. There's consequence for sin. You know, in Genesis 15, long before the law, Abram, God took him outside and says, you're old and you have no kids, but look at the stars. If you can count them, you'll be able to count your descendants. And we're told Abram believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. You see, it was, was is and it was and it will be faith that saves, not the acts of our hands. But obedience is always an outward manifestation, a display that we have faith, that we believe what God is telling us. They have a record in their own books of what happens when obedience is not coupled uh, with their, quote-unquote, faith, with their rituals. Uh, they have a sad story in Ezekiel 10 and 11 about the glory of the Lord departing the Holy of Holies, departing the temple, departing the house of the Lord, departing outside the gate of the city to the mountain. The glory of the Lord was removed from their presence. One of the passages, Psalm 40, um, speaks, it is not one of the ones where there's a, a stinging rebuke for um, that, that's why the sacrifice wasn't required. This is a, there's some arguments among some of the rabbis, but most of them agree that this is a messianic psalm. It, it speaks of the people recognizing the glorious blessings they've received from their God and how good it is to put faith in God and not to follow the proud. That's, that's the two camps, right? There's only two types of human beings that are all in uh, Habakkuk 2.4. We have, as for the proud ones, their soul is not right within them but the just shall live by faith. But it moves as he gets to verse 6 uh, to the singular masculine pronoun. It is one person uh, that's being spoken of here now. So sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened or digged or pierced. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. This is speaking of Messiah. It's not talking about the Jews can do away with their sacrifice. This is talking about the Messiah doesn't need a sacrifice. There's no reason that a sacrifice needed to be made for him. He had no sin of his own to pay for. That's why he's available to pay for ours. And Paul quoting him in the book of the Hebrews talks about, he replaces that, my ears you have opened, which the, the rabbis all say, that's just a sign that Messiah has dedicated himself to being obedient to God. Well, Paul says, instead of my ears you have opened or pierced or digged, he says, a body you have prepared for me. Now, Christ was given a body prepared to sacrifice on the cross. And in resurrection, there's another body. We are body of Christ. And this is a beautiful picture of Messiah and of one who has no need for a sacrifice on his behalf. Well, the only legitimate way that the temple and the sacrificial system could be done away would be with the institution of the new covenant, spoken of in Jeremiah 31. Um, I was reading some comments by, I think his name was Reem. He pointed out that the word Yeshua in the Old Testament and its other derivatives occurs 106 times, and it's translated salvation. And of the 106 times, all but two, so 104 of them, 
It is a definite, direct work of God effecting salvation for mankind. The other two are escaping calamities, but it's always a work of the Lord. It's never by the work of the hand of mankind. And that supports, again, what we read in, in Psalm 49 and Ezekiel 18, that no man can die for the sins of another. Now, we're going to go to um, uh, Isaiah uh, 53. I had the suffering servant will actually start towards the end of uh, Isaiah 52. And uh, before we go there, I will say uh, that the point of all this discussion was to lead up to the belief amongst Jew all streams of Judaism today that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is represented in the nation of Israel. They claim the nation of Israel is suffering for the sins of the world. I would say um, they are maybe suffering because of a sinful world, but they're not suffering for the sinful world. And prior to about the, the 11th century, um, no rabbi ever associated the suffering servant with the nation of Israel. And since that time, many rabbis have disagreed with this assertion. It was put out by Rashi. This is the Rabbi Shlomo. It's Chaki. I'm sure I'm massacring his, his name. But today they say, this isn't about Messiah. This is about the nation of Israel who is suffering for the sins of the world. Let's read it and see how it squares up with the verses we've looked at uh, beforehand. Uh, again, there was no chapter breaks and in verses in, uh, individual verses in the, uh, when the word was written. So we're going to start at uh, Isaiah 52, 13. And I'll say also that one of the reasons the rabbis say that this is the nation of Israel, if you look at uh, uh, Isaiah 52 and 51 before, it's speaking in the plural of Zion and of Israel. And, and that's true. But when you get to verse 13, the personal pronoun switches from the plural to masculine singular. So it's talking about one person. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. I'm going to stop here for a second because there's a hint here also that this is Messiah. And I, I will agree with Brother Joe Reese that this, I don't believe this is speaking about how badly he was physically marred. Some of us have seen human bodies all but utterly destroyed and still survive. It's not talking about that here. I really don't believe it. What this is speaking to is the Lord of glory. That's heaven above. He came down. He humbled himself becoming a man, and then humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross. I don't care how badly you destroy the physical body of a man here on earth. You can't go as far as the Lord of glory came from glory to this earth. Again, that verse is evidence this has to be Messiah. Continuing with verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. And that which they had not heard, shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we see, shall see him, 
There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Has the entire nation of Israel been cut off out of the land of the living? There have certainly been those who have attempted to remove them, all of them from life. I don't think you can fit the nation of Israel in here for that. And the quote continues, For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. Now, in spite of my declaration, how much I love the, uh, the Jewish people, can we honestly say they have done no violence? Neither was any deceit in his mouth. You know, again, was there never any deceit in their mouth? Some of us have had uh, positions where we were required to be deceived. That was part of the job. I can identify with the, uh, the 12 that were sent out at Kadesh Barnea. I, I hope more like Caleb and, and Joshua than the other 10, but they were spies. The deceit was their, their trade. Can we say that Israel has no deceit in their mouth, as much as we might love them? It kind of prevents them from being the picture of the suffering servant here. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Again, is the nation of Israel righteous? Are they without iniquity? For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Again, knowing that a sinful man cannot die for the sins of another, how could we possibly, by their own scripture, put them in here? And that's how lovingly we want to challenge those who look upon this passage about the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. Your own scripture does not allow for that uh, to be used. Sadder, you're saying God made some mistakes. Now, there are some of the, the modern, the reform uh, Judaism doesn't believe that the Torah, even the Torah, the law is actually the inspired word of God. They think it's created by man. But the rest of the streams of Judaism, they all look at the, the Torah in particular as being an unalterable word of God. 
and they look at the whole Tanakh that way. By their own understanding of Scripture, if they read it, they would see the nation of Israel cannot be the suffering servant. And down through the years, there's been many rabbis reading through that see this. The Lord would lay in their heart. There was one you know, 150, 200 years ago in Eastern Europe. And reading through is a, is a rabbi. He's, he knows there's something wrong as he's teaching, as he reads scripture and then tries to apply the, the wisdom, the logic of the Talmud, commentaries essentially on the, on the Torah and the Mishrath, on the writings. This isn't fitting. He calls out to God, show me. Show me the truth. God answers prayer. And this rabbi started to read Daniel chapter 9. And being, having some training also in, in accounting apparently, he did the numbers and he says, Messiah had, to, Messiah had to have already come. How could we miss it? He began to ask his other, the other rabbis in the surrounding towns. One, and they, they abused him something terrible. They began to slander him. One of them says, I, I, I'm not willing to talk about that, but you might want to go to America. There's some Jews over there who think Messiah has come. So he, even his family rejected him. He left his wife and kids and came to New York and, and God led him to some Messianic Jews. And, a bit, and he, he came to Christ. And even there his life was threatened because the, the Jews when he first came, they accepted him as a, a rabbi, a teacher. And he had to flee to Scotland to save his life. Eventually, he formed a ministry called Chosen, what today it's known as Chosen People's Ministries. An offshoot from that is Jews for Jesus. This was a guy named Leopold Cohn. And he has been savaged and ridiculed, threats on his life. Now, he's gone home to be with the Lord a long time ago. But there's many rabbis down through the years in reading their own scripture, the Lord has laid upon their heart the truth. In a couple minutes, we have... Um, uh, before closing, I'm just going to pass on some tips that uh, were, have been given to us by those who have come out of Judaism, have recognized Yahushua HaMashiach, that Jesus is Messiah, and they want to offer unto us tips, some pointers about how we might, in a, speaking the truth in love, put it in a manner in which those who are followers of Judaism can accept it and begin to understand. And again, when they see how the Christian gospel is so closely aligned with the truths of the Old Testament, then they'll begin to look at the New Testament as well. And God won't leave them uh, in comfort. But there's some foundational differences, and it comes down to the semantics in a sense. You know, there's a, a, a denotation is the actual meaning of a word and the connotation. That's what the rest of us think it means. And there are certain terms we use in the Christian church that have different meanings for the Jew. And understanding that can aid us if we're trying to reach out to them. And one of these uh, Jewish brothers puts on, he says, you have to be clear on the foundational doctrine. You have to be truthful and faithful to that. And for us, that's sin, salvation, and a savior. But those terms are foreign to Jews or they associate it with Christianity who has so horribly persecuted them down through the millennia. Their connotation of these words are different than ours. The first one, sin. The Jewish people think that sin, they think of it in, in individual terms and individual deeds, not as some deep-seated characteristic of humankind. And the label sinner, they just apply it to somebody who's 
um, just a despicable, notoriously decadent or, or wicked, evil person. And we need to point out that all people sin. We can use David as an example. There was one rabbi who pointed out, he said, oh, there's no problem there. Um, Bathsheba had already divorced Uriah. Uriah was a horribly wicked man, and David did good to put him to death. I, I guess that rabbi must have never read um, Psalm 51. Never read the passage about David confessing before the prophet Nathan. No, there's consequences for sin. Salvation. Again, that's another foreign term to most Jewish people. They're more concerned about how to live right here and now than to be saved from hell in the afterlife. See, they tend to view themselves, we're God's chosen people. The only way I'm going to go to hell is if I do something, if I screw up big time. If I do something terrible, wrong, because I'm in the in crowd. Now, you Gentiles, you're just fuel for the fires of hell. But us Jews, we're, we're in. And that is an underlying thought that has buoyed their belief that they're, they don't have to worry about sin. So they, they don't think about salvation. The Jews will say, uh, maybe redemption is a better word, like in the Passover Seder, the Passover meal. We might think about Boaz, the kinsman redeemer in Ruth, and relate it to them in, in, in ways that they can be redeemed. Sin, salvation, savior. Again, the third term is not understood by Jewish people. When they hear it, they associate it with Christianity, and Christianity, not true Christianity. There have been some true Christians who have involved themselves in it, but in the name of Christianity, the Jews have suffered horribly down through the millennium. It's no wonder they don't want to listen to us. Again, it's not really understood by the Jewish people. Maybe we want to use the word Messiah. That's the term they're familiar with. It, it brings some problems of its own. I'll talk about it in a moment because there's also a difference of opinion about what Messiah means and who Messiah is in the minds of somebody who um, is brought up in the Jewish faith. I'll talk briefly about, and I'll cover that here as I talk about some of the objections um, in closing. You're talking to a, a Jewish friend or even somebody you just meet, they'll, they'll start to throw out uh, some um, objections. And some of them may, may know Scripture extremely well. And there's a whole bunch of them that you probably know more of the Old Testament than they do. But they'll say things like, there's no way I'm going to be a Christian. You Christians worship three gods. God is one. We worship one God. That's because they don't understand the Trinity. And I can just laugh and say, that shouldn't keep you from being a Christian. We don't understand the Trinity either. But in truth, I mean, we do. God's given us enough to explain it. And I just point out to them, you know, the Tanakh uses plural terms to describe God. I mean, at creation, he said, let us make man in our image. One of the names they use for God, Elohim. That's plural. And it's not just two. Elohim is three or more. I says, now if the Tanakh and the law can use the plural to describe your God, I think we're okay with it. You know, and Mark... Um, um, Jesus quotes um, the, the Shema, that God is one, in, in Mark 12. He had no issue or trouble with this. 
we believe in the same God. The misconception about a trinity should never put them away from it. Sometimes they'll say there's no proof that uh, Jesus was the Messiah. And I've got a, a number of verses. I'll, if you're interested in them, I'll give them to you later. We don't have time to go through them. I'll just mention Isaiah 9, 6, where we're told, you know, unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given. They might be able to argue that away, but if you complete uh, what's in, in, in that verse, it points out when we're given his names, uh, you know, m wonderful counselor, but it goes on to say, mighty God, eternal Father. So whoever this child is that's going to be born, whoever this son is that is given, is deity. Speaking of Messiah, if Jesus is a Messiah, they say, how come there isn't peace on earth? And, and they'll, they'll, they'll go, I got you with that one. Because they know that Messiah, when he comes, will bring peace to the earth. That Jesus came 2,000 years ago, where's the peace on earth? And for them, that's a legitimate question. How do we answer it? Well, we say, without peace with God, there can never be peace on earth. His first coming solved the first problem. It offers us peace with God. And bringing peace to earth at his second coming, Messiah is going to do exactly what you think he's going to do. But if you don't have peace with God, you're not going to enjoy peace on earth when he sets up his kingdom. Rather than being two messiahs, as many of the rabbis teach, uh, uh, Messiah Ben Joseph, the suffering uh, Messiah, and Messiah Ben David, the, the, the victorious reigning Messiah. No, there's one Messiah, two comings. They say, they'll ask, how can you expect me to believe in a God um, when we've suffered so much persecution? And a great deal of it at the hands of the Christians. And again, that's a legitimate a beef on their part. We can point out uh, evil men and tyrants can take even good things and misuse it. Tyrants down through the ages have um, taken the concept of justice, of freedom, and have uh, just treated people horribly. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue them. I might say, we Jews don't proselytize. What they're really saying is, I'm not forcing my religion on you. Don't force it on me. We might point out that their own prophet, Isaiah, pointed out in, four, in Isaiah 42 and 49. He says, you're supposed to be proselytizing. You're supposed to be revealing God to the world. How come you're not doing it? I might say, well, I, I'm happy with my religion. I don't, I don't need yours. And the point of mankind is not to be happy. I may not fully agree with the, a lot of the things the Creedal Church says, but the Westminster Shorty Catechism is, is pretty good. I have no problem claiming that. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we ought to be willing to share that treasure with others. And that's what I tell. I'm not forcing anybody into my religion. I don't get brownie points for signing you up. I have this treasure. I'm just willing to share it with you. And what we ought to really seek is peace with God. Because if we have peace with God, then you get joy. And joy is far better than some fleeting momentary happiness, which is dependent upon circumstances. Finally, they might say, if Jesus is Messiah, how come the rabbis don't believe in him? And uh, again, there's, I can give you names of a number of them. Most of the rabbis who, who believe in him uh, and have come forward have, have been all but destroyed with, in their lives within mankind. 
They're established with God and blessed forever. And many rabbis who believe in Yeshua as Messiah don't speak up because they know they won't be able to be rabbis. They lose their position. Um, again, the point of all this is we're called upon to bear witness to all creation. And one day, God is going to return. And as our brother spoke of last week from Zechariah, the whole world's going to go to the Jews for religious instruction. They're going to cling. Ten, ten Gentiles will cling to the hem of, a, of, of one Jew. Uh, they're going to be restored uh, to a ruling authority along with Jesus in, in this physical world during the Messianic kingdom. But our goal should be to get as many of, as possible of them into the body of Christ. And that ought to be our desire, to win them the same as we want to win our friends and family and other Gentiles. As I've said before, the only thing of value in this world is a human soul. But God has said that Israel and the children of Israel are the apple of his eye. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for uh, the wisdom uh, of your scripture. We pray that uh, if, if I did a poor job of relating it, that, that you would cause the ears of those who hear this message to receive what you would have imparted to them. Father, we want to be made uh, equal to the task that you've set before each and every one of us as individuals, and we want to come together in a corporate body, glorifying your name and lifting up the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to recognize open doors. Father, give us open doors uh, to Gentiles and to Jews, and then cause us, according to the promise of your son, that we might remember his words and speak well of the one who loved us so much that he gave his life. Again, it's in the name of Jesus, the Christ, our Savior. Amen.